Open up to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, we're continuing in the book of Matthew. We're getting close to being done. I was looking at the calendar. I'd say probably 2030 will be done. <laughs> but we're getting close. We're in Matthew 22. June and July, June and July have to be the two months of the year when people plan their big, big events. So weddings are usually in either June or July, most of them. Anniversaries, family get-togethers, reunions, and of course, open houses. June and July, open houses just never seem to end, especially if you're a pastor at a church. And um, have you ever noticed that in Michigan, it's always interesting to me, people spend a lot of money in a three-hour party. Did you ever notice that? Like, a lot of money, a lot of money. When I graduated from high school in Ohio back in 1984, my dad cooked some burgers and I played Monopoly later that evening. That was my graduation party. It's a lot of fun. But here, it seems like people will take out second mortgages to have their child's open house graduation party. I have, in the last 25 years, been invited to a lot of them. I can, when I think back on them, just it's like a swirling menagerie of cupcakes, school pictures, pulled pork, cornhole games, walking tacos, graduation robes, and rented church tables and chairs, you know? And so it's hard to remember all of the different open houses. Normally I'll remember the open houses where the food's really good, you know, where you'll have not just seconds, but you'll stay around a couple hours for thirds, fourths, and fifths. Those are good open houses. But then you have those open houses when you drive up, cars are parked all the way to Grand Rapids. You know, it's the biggest part of the year, having, you know, big firework display, and they'll do everything for the kid. But there is one, in all of these years, 25 years, in all of these years, there is one party, one graduation open house I will never forget. It's because my wife and I were the only ones that showed up. It was unbelievable. We walked in. We saw the beautiful manicured lawn, fresh landscaping. You know they worked for probably months to get the house to look good. They had a big white canopy with about 15 round tables and chairs silently sitting with nobody on it, you know, centerpieces that had their child's picture on it. Then you go to the food area and hasn't been touched, but it could probably feed three, four hundred people. They have their displays of their kids with photographs, awards, the robe from kindergarten to senior high. And my wife and I are the only ones that went. When we showed up, you could tell the hosts were excited we were there. We talked to the grad, but they were also Really embarrassed, kind of, and uh, disappointed. Nobody came. How would you feel if you got this lavish event, this big party already, and nobody comes? I'll tell you, when you love your child, you want them to be honored for all the work they've done. You want people to share in their joy, and you want to celebrate. But if nobody comes, it's almost like it flips on its head and you ask the question, does anybody like me? Don't, don't they like my kid? What is, 
would people rather go fishing and listen to another Detroit Tigers game than just come to a party? We went broke in the bank for nothing? Feel that. I want you to feel that. I want you to let it sink in. What does that feel like? And now we're going to read this parable. It's Matthew 22, 1 through 14, and it's called, Why Don't People Want to Come to God's Party? Here's what it says, starting in verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Doug Kruger's cooking. And everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. And they went off. Well, one, one went to his farm, you know, busy on his farm. And another to his business. While the, while the rest seized the servants, they treated them shamefully and they killed them. Then he said, uh, oh, then verse 7 says this, the king was angry. And he sent his troops and he destroyed those murderers and he burned their city. He burned their city? Just because they didn't go to a wedding feast? Well, they did kill a couple of the servants. But he burned their city? Let's keep reading. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where many are called, but few are chosen. This is a very odd parable. Let's pray before we just kind of go through it. I just want to pray. Father, I ask you, I just ask you to enlighten us. First of all, I ask you to help us take it, take it deadly serious, but at the same time, to evaluate our own hearts. I, I really don't want to rush through this. So please answer my prayer. Amen. So if you listen closely, this is really a, what I would say, it's a parable of two extremes. It has on one side a picture of a king who is so benevolent there's nobody like him. Offers three invitations. So you could say we find in verses 3 and 4, he says, come. My son's getting married, and I'm going to have all the fixings. 
It's going to be great. And then later on, those after some people refused, he's like, hey, I still want people to come. And so he just said, go out to anybody, bad and good. Doesn't mean if they're righteous or not righteous. Just means it doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter their social standing. Doesn't matter. Just invite anybody. So you could say on, on one end, we have, if this is representing God, which it does, God's the king, God the father, and the son is Jesus Christ. He is not an... He is not a stodgy, unkind, skin, old skinflint. He is good. He's generous. I think that is, his, that is his nature is to bless. He really wants to bless people. I think there is this verse in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that says, Satan has blinded the minds of people to think that God is not good, to think that God is always angry, God is not benevolent, God is always wanting and demanding. And so we kind of run away from him because we're scared of him. He is just a cold-hearted God. But to me, this parable paints a different picture. A God who wants us. He wants us. But then this parable takes a dark twist. I mean, a really dark twist. Um, those who rejected the invitation were wiped out by the king's army. I mean, <laughs> that's kind of crazy. Simply because I didn't go to a wedding feast? Well, there were a couple people that did kill some of the servants. Why don't you just arrest those guys? Did you have to wipe out everybody in the city? What is happening? And then he gives this other invitation, and, uh, you know, good and bad, so probably they're not the best dressed, and one guy's not dressed wearing a good garment. He's tied up, hand and feet, and he's thrown into a torture chamber. So we have a very odd parable here, and we need to understand this. How do we make sense out of this? And specifically, what does this have to do with me today? So there's going to be three vital issues, and I think we really need to work through these issues. Um... Because Scripture needs to be believed. That's the best way to put it. God doesn't just give us Scripture to, I don't know, to, to have something sound good. He gives Scripture so we can know reality as it is, especially what it's like when we tear heaven apart. This is what God is like right now. Like right now, this is who He is. I had a dad, I had a great dad. There's a side of my dad, he was the most, he was the kindest guy I ever had. All my friends would want to come over. My dad was always grilling, always frying up fish. If, we'd, if he'd make pancakes, he'd make everybody eat like six or seven. He was a benevolent guy. But I also had a dad, if he was mad, I wanted to be out of the house. I did not want to catch his gaze or his wrath. There was a side to him, he was the greatest guy I knew. There's a side to him who's the most fearful guy I knew. When I read this parable, this is how I feel. This God we have is great. This God we have is not to be messed with. And we've been messing with him a lot. So the three big issues, I think, is number one, we have to ask the question, why is refusing the invitation such a big deal? 
Like it's a big deal. Why? Second question we got to answer is why is wearing the wrong clothes bad? I want to know because sometimes I'll do weddings and my wife will go, you're not going to wear that shirt. You're doing a wedding. She never throws me out and tortures. I know she wants to. But she's never done that to me yet. And then the third question we have to ask is this. Who, who are the chosen? You know, it ends, many are called, few are chosen. What does that mean? What does that even mean? So let's talk about the invitation. The supreme value of the invitation. The enormous privilege it is to be invited. We have to really consider this a second. Just to give you what I would say a theological perspective, scholars will point out that in a Jewish ceremony in ancient Judaism, often they'd give two invitations. The first one would say, hey, my son's getting married. Get ready. But then the second invitation was to inform them when it was going to happen because sometimes it took a long time to get ready for the wedding. Sometimes they were engaged or they gave the announcement and it took them a whole year to get ready for the wedding. So the invitation is to both invite, get ready, and to inform. Well, in this case, the king represents God, the son represents Christ, the invitation represents the nation Israel. They were given the invitation, the son showed up, and they weren't ready for it. And because of that, God is going to say, Israel... We're gonna, I'm going to ransack your city. Seventy years from this time, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by Nero. Then you have a third invitation. Who's the third invitation? Well, and theologically, it's since Israel rejected the invitation, it goes to the Gentiles. And so when he says good and bad, it goes to everybody. Doesn't matter who you are. It goes to everybody. But instead of focusing on the specifics, I want us to look at two things. I want you to first see the heart of the king in the invitation, and then I want to see the party that he's inviting us to. So the heart of the king is he's pursuing us, and the wedding's free. It's always been free. He writes in Isaiah 55, is anyone thirsty? Come, drink, even if you have no money. Come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me, and you'll eat what's good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen, and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love I promised to David. And so this invitation is for everybody. It's for everybody. And then he sends out messengers. He sends out people that go the highways and byways to invite them. And in a way, our church, that's what we're just trying to do is inviting people to the wedding supper. We've sent out missionaries to Japan, to Africa, to Eastern Europe, to South America, to Brazil, to Peru, my wife and I went to Russia simply to invite people to the wedding because God's looking for anyone who will come, both good and bad. I mean, think about this. God, he doesn't care about what you've done in the past. He says, just come. 
but some of you are probably saying, but he doesn't know me. I'm not perfect. I don't have necessarily, I don't have enough money. I don't do a lot of good things. Maybe you don't have a perfect body. You're not rich. Maybe you made a ton of mistakes. You might even consider yourself ugly, poor. You don't belong. Who cares? Who cares? The invitation is free. It's free. But wait a second, wait a second. Do you hear that? Oh, oh, you're too busy. Oh, you're too busy to come. Or maybe you're too important. Some of you, I know why you don't buy the invitation, because you don't want to leave your fun friends. Some of you are making enough money, you don't need anybody. You're all right. You can do it on your own. You can stay fat, happy, and left alone on your own. What was that? What did some of you whisper under your breath? The sun's really not that big a deal. I mean, some of you use his name as a swear word, so maybe he's not that big a deal. Have you ever met him? Like, have you ever really met him? If you haven't met him, then you have no idea what you're talking about. I have met a lot of people in my day. There is nobody that compares to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Nobody. You could say it like this. The great king of heaven and earth has personally invited you to celebrate in his son's greatest moment. It's like going to that open house and everything's ready. And this, this is the son's greatest moment. You go to all of his awards, all of history has been worked out for this wedding day. All of the universe has been created for this day. In refusing him, refusing him is the highest personal affront you can ever give to the king. Saying, oh, your son's not that big a deal. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. That's all God wants is you to love his son. And to snub the father is to snub majesty. To think you are more important than 6,000 years of history and why the universe was made and that it's really not that big a deal is narcissistic arrogance at its height. This world is not about you. It's all about the sun. It's, uh, let me just kind of give you an illustration of what I'm trying to talk, talk about. It's how I make sense of it. So this past week, we went to watch the fireworks at my daughter's house. My youngest son, who's not young, I mean, he's 21, he said, I don't know if I ever saw a large firework display. And we're, I'm thinking, Wow. And that, when, I, when I think about it, the last eight years, I can understand that. Because normally we would just stay home and we'd buy bottle rockets and have those snakes that you light, you know, those black snakes. We'd give them a handful of those white things you put in your pockets and you pop them on the sidewalk. And, you know, you'd buy that $10 fizzy thing. And that was our firework display. And so when I invite my son to the fireworks, he's like, eh, I don't, fireworks? Dad, I've seen your fireworks. They're really dumb, like really dumb. So we go to a firework display where probably $250,000 is spent. 
And he's like, what? What? Whoa, this is a firework display. You know, like, oh, that last one. Did you see that last one? It lit up the whole sky. When you see Jesus come in his wedding garments, he's going to light up the whole universe. You think you've been to a wedding? You have not been to a wedding. It is going to be the single day that we have been made for. It's going to be incredible. It's funny, I was talking to Tom Thomas. He said, will you quit saying unbelievable? So it is going to be believable. Like, man. And we have this, we, I think what happens to us is we get, we get so stuck in the only things we know when we tell people, well, you have been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Yeah, so I've been to weddings. No, you haven't. Not of the perfect person. Not of the person who made the sun and tossed the stars into the sky. It's his wedding. I'll tell you a quick side note. This, so after first service, there's a dad that came up to me. And he's holding his son. Just got him out of the nursery. The nursery person, per, or the, like the toddlers, the, the uh, person working at the toddlers thing said, you know what your son said about you? He said, you're the greatest dad ever. And the dad said, before he's coming in there, his son could hear him. He goes, my dad's coming. My dad's coming. And he said, you know, as you were talking about this, you know how we focus a lot on the son? I think this, he's saying, I think the son will say, where do you see my dad? <laughs> he did this wedding for me. Not only does the father love the son, but the son loves the father. It's going to be a display of both of their grandeur. They're both going to be incredible. So, are you going to go? Have you ever accepted Jesus? Like, really give him your life? I think one of the reasons people don't do the invitation is this second question. It's kind of eerie, the significance of wearing a wedding, wedding garments, because if you don't have it, you're kicked out. Ooh, what does that even mean? Well, if, you're, if you study what I'd say, there's two, two things you can do to really try to figure this out, is one is you have to properly divide the word of truth, which means read the whole Bible to see where it talks about robes and wedding garments and white robes, and it'll give you a little bit of insight, and then look at the context, the parable that came before this which we talked about last week, will give us some insight. So I think when it's saying we need to have wedding robes or white robes, what does that mean? I think having a white robe means you're a person of humility. It shows humility. So for instance, I was talking to this uh, one pastor that was really researched this a lot, and he talks about how some Asian countries still hold to old wedding rituals, and what they will do is they will buy wedding garments for the guests that come. So when you show up, they give you a wedding garment to wear. It's a gift. You get to keep it, but you need to wear it during the wedding. And he said it's for two reasons. One is they want to honor you with this beautiful garment. But the second reason is so it won't draw attention away from the bride and groom. So for instance, if people come to the wedding and they're poor, 
and they don't have anything to wear to the wedding, you give them a garment which covers their dirty clothes. But let's say you're super rich and you come to the wedding and usually rich people like to show how rich they are and they want to be kind of seen. So instead of you being the star of the show, you wear the wedding garment so you look just like everybody else because it's not about you, it's about the bride and the groom. So, in this case, the wedding garment represents this righteousness that God gives you. We call it salvation. That's a free gift, but it has nothing to do with you. Whether you're poor and terrible or great and wonderful compared to everybody else, you are no comparison to the king and his son. So you could say that white garment means nobody comes on their own merit. It's a free gift. And you're all equal before Christ. Second thing this means is it displays purity, acts of righteousness. That you are clean. So when you accept Jesus Christ, Jesus has died for our sins. And his right, it's called the righteousness of Christ. We are in Christ. Often in the book of Ephesians you'll see the phrase, in Christ. The idea is that our identity is now hidden in Christ and when God sees us, he sees, he sees his righteousness in my life. But not only that, now that I have been given Christ's righteousness, now that salvation has been put in me, I need to work it out as well. It will start being seen. It will be like a garment. I take off the old and I put on the new. In the book of Revelation, there's this church called Laodicea. Laodicea was the last church mentioned. Jesus wrote a letter to Laodicea. They were really rich people. And he writes this letter to them, and he says, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. So you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And so the idea here is Jesus is saying, I want you, I'm imploring you to accept Christ so now you can be dressed in these garments and now live as if you're saved. Walk worthy of the calling you've received. And then the third thing you could say is this white robe is basically a way to show honor to the king. I submit to his will. I want you to wear this. I want you to recognize my son as the star. It's different than humility. What it means is I have given up my rights, my pride, my glory for his. I want him to be shown off. I am no longer in charge of my life. God is. So this symbolism is more than humility. It's giving God the glory he deserves. And Jesus the glory he deserves. It's about him. It's about him. Here's what one commentator said. About the person who got thrown out. And why did he get thrown out? And he said the man is thrown out because he probably presumed on the free offer of salvation by assuming that, therefore, there are no obligations, faith without works. Entry into the kingdom of heaven may be free, 
But to continue in it carries conditions. Even though this man belongs to the new group of invitees, he is one who produces no fruit. And so is no less liable to forfeit his newfound privilege than those who were excluded before him. And so in other words, just like the parable last week, God is looking for new tenants who work God's vineyard and produce fruit. In the same way, he wants people who are invited to the wedding because they produce fruit. That's what the white robe's about. Which leads to the final question. What does it mean to be part of the chosen? How do I live so I don't get kicked out? And this is a big theological issue, especially if you look at verse 14. Verse 14, for many are called and few are chosen. And usually what will happen is this statement will instantly turn into a theological discussion about Jesus' general call and his what's called effectual call. General call, he calls all of the world to get saved. Effectual call, only the elect are saved. So then we talk about the elect, and usually it ends up being talk about what God did in eternity. But I think in these parables, he's talking about what you are doing today to show that you are actually his. This is more than a, you know, a theological wrangling. It's more concerned about how can you spot true believers from false. So here's what R.T. France said. The chosen are those who respond to God's summons and are ready to give God his due, and they produce fruit. They respond to the summons. Here, take the cloak. Take this robe. Take salvation. Jesus died for you on a cross. And it's free. What do I have to do? Accept it. It's free. It's yours. Yeah, but I'm not as good as him, and I'm not as good as him. They all have to come into the wedding the same way. And then he says, you respond to God's summons and are ready to give his due. Now that I'm in, I give him glory. How do I give God glory? How do I exalt him and make it about him and not me? I do what he says. I obey him. I let him be God. That's why it says they produce fruit. We are here to display his beauty. That's why we're here on this earth. Not just to get into the wedding, but to celebrate the sun with our lives. So... I think a true believer is the person who is right now putting off the old self, putting on the new, doing it humbly, bearing a fruit of love, and desire the glory of God above all else. So what if I refuse this? What if I refuse the invitation? We have to ask this question. And the reason we have to ask this question is because Scripture is true. And what Scripture says, I think we have an obligation to take it truly at its face value. So what happens if I do refuse the greatest invitation ever given because in my estimation as a pastor, I have seen a lot of people who have left earth without accepting the invitation. A lot of people are busy. Oh, they're so busy. they got to cut hay in the hay field and it might rain tomorrow. Even though they've cut hay for the last 50 years, and, our, and the wedding's only one day. Oh, they got to be busy. Some people got to help with that business. You know, I got to get that business made up. 
Got to make money. Some people just, um, they just assume they're in because they were born in the right family or they've gone to church. So I'm in. Some people could just care less. And then you have some people that think they have all the time in the world. It's kind of like you get that invitation and you put it on the, put it on the fridge with that magnet and you, you don't really know. Did you ever notice when you put stuff on the fridge often you never see it again? You think you're going to look at it, but you never realize it. Remember I walked past one of these pictures we had? I'm like, man, we've had that up there probably for 15 years. That's my nephew. He looks like he's five years old and he's 30 now. It's sort of like that. That's how people handle the gospel. Oh, I'll put it on the, I'll put it on the fridge and I'll keep it in my mind, but I'll get to it later. What if it's too late? And I don't, and I'm not using that as a false manipulative tool. And the reason I say that is there's been a lot of people who've died lately. What if you die without accepting it? I'm not, I'm not going to talk about it, but I'm just going to read. Because it's hard to talk about. I take no pleasure in it. Here's what it says, starting in verse 5. So here's the people who paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So verse 5 and 6 are the people who are given the invitation, and they could care less. Not only that, they're given the invitation, and they mock the people given the invitation, and kill the people who give the invitation. It's those same people who make fun of Christians who say, well, you quit talking about Jesus. So what happens to them? Verse 7. I'll just read it really slow. And then your job is to ask yourself, is this true or not? Verse 7. The king was angry. He sent his troops, angels, he's the host of heaven. He destroyed those murderers and burned their city. What if you don't have the right clothes on? What if you assume you're in? So some people are like, how did that guy get in there without clothes, proper wedding clothes? He sneak in. Some people, some scholars will say it's kind of like the, the uh, wheat and the tares. God will let people grow and then eventually you'll see if they're true or not. But let's say you are fake. What about you? Well, that's where verse 13 comes in or verse 12. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. It means he couldn't, say, he couldn't answer the question. Why not? Because Romans 3 says if we still have our garments of sin, Romans 3.11 says, we're going to be speechless. So what happens to him? Verse 13. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot. So it's in an inescapable bind. Bind him hand and foot. Cast him into the outer darkness. What is the outer darkness? Sheol, Hades, hell, the lake of fire. How do I know that? Well, because in the outer darkness, 
That's the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping means probably regretful sorrow forever. Gnashing of teeth means pain. Either you believe that or you don't. And so what I would say, everything depends upon what you really believe. Um, do you believe that God is really this good? He's inviting you freely? Also the question is, do you really believe if you reject the invitation, it's the worst sin you could ever, it's the worst sin you could ever commit because he's the greatest God. So when you reject his invitation, you are insulting him. So you're insulting the greatest person who ever, who ever existed. You're insulting the creator of the, wor of the universe, of your life. That's why it's a bad deal. So do you believe that? And here's, if you believe something, you will do something about it. So that's called faith. So let's say, let's say if you, have a chair, you have a chair out on Highway 37 right here. You just put a chair out there, one of these green chairs. And you're sitting in the middle of the highway. And then you see, about a half a mile down, you, you see this massive semi coming. And it's barreling down M37. So you're sitting on a chair and you see, that, you see that truck. And so you ask yourself, do I believe that truck will hit me? Yeah, I do. I, from the history of the world, you know, I've seen, I've seen things get hit on the street. So I believe if I sit here and I don't move, that truck will hit me. If you really believe it, you'll get off the chair. You'll do something about it. Belief, actual belief, compels behavior. If you don't believe it, you say, yeah, that truck's just an illusion. Whatever, dude, I'll survive it. All right, good luck. Good luck. The question is, do you believe that this passage on one end is the greatest invitation right now ever offered and afforded you, where if you accept Christ, you will, you will be clothed in his righteousness regardless of who you are, how you've ever been, how rich you are, that you are going to be invited to the wedding. If you believe that, you'll accept it. Do you believe that if you don't, you are going to be thrown out in utter darkness? I'm not sure people believe that. But I do. That's why I try to preach. I try to do a good job of preaching because I really think it's true. I think this Bible's really true. And if I didn't, this would be the dumbest job any person could ever do. Truthfully. If this isn't true, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15... I am probably one of the biggest fools who ever lived on this earth. Because I am giving up my time to tell you something that is like an illusion. But have you ever seen a truck come barreling down 37? People drive, they don't drive 55, they drive 70 down there. I don't want to get hit by a truck going 70. And I don't want to be in the bad graces of the God who can melt mountains. I hope you don't either.